Hey, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Dapply Labs in Provo. Corey House. Hi, everybody. Corey House sitting here at Vin Solutions in Kansas City. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that's Jonathan Carter. Hello, everyone. Do you want to give us a brief introduction, Jonathan? Uh, yeah. So I'm a, a, a PM at Microsoft. I've been at the company coming up on close to 10 years and uh, been pretty involved in, in all things JavaScript between Visual Studio, uh, worked on the editor experience back uh, in the Windows 10 timeframe, got to work on the developer tools for IE and Edge, Cordova tooling in, in Visual Studio, um, DevOps-related tooling, such as um, the service called CodePush that allows you to do over-the-air updates for React Native apps. Uh, and right now, my focus is on Node.js and Azure. So very much been a JavaScript uh, developer for most of my career. And uh, yeah, that's really where my passion is. So. Awesome. Now, uh, we, we kind of brought you on to talk about, well, kind of all kinds of things. I, I kind of want to start with Azure. I, I think there are a lot of other topics that, you know, some of the other panelists want to get to as well. So can we start there and then talk about some of these other things like Visual Studio Code and, and stuff like that? Uh, yeah. Was there anything specific about Azure you want to discuss or just kind of generally what we have to offer for Node developers? Well, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you can just go into the basics of what Azure is because it's it's kind of changed over the years. I remember initially it just kind of sort of hosted apps, um, JavaScript, maybe.net. And then it's kind of grown into this thing where now you can host, I mean, we just did an episode yesterday about Docker. And so, you yeah. know, you can host all that stuff. You can, I mean, you know, what, what it's, it's cloud, but what is cloud, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a handful of different ways to interpret cloud, but you know, one of the common kind of descriptions that I've heard many folks discuss is just the ability to have self-service elastic, you know, backends to run your applications. And so the self-service part is, is compelling because, you know, as developers, if we are able to uh, experiment, evaluate, um, try out new software without having to go through lengthy, um, you know, whether we're making requests to, you know, an ops team or uh, looking to do some static provisioning on existing servers that we have. Um, there's just something really powerful about being able to say, hey, I just need a new Ubuntu VM uh, to try something out. Um, or I want to, you know, as continuous delivery uh, trends become much more commonplace, you know, being able to have as much uh, control and flexibility on a dev team to be able to, uh, you know, make deployments um, change and enhance your uh, production or, you know, dev or test staging environments as possible is really powerful. And then the, you know, elastic side of things really helps, of course, when you're talking about not wanting to under or over provision, you know, servers for your app, um, which you know, really is beneficial from a financial aspect. And so, um, you know, being able to start small, but know that as you, you know, if you architect your application right, you know, maybe by following you know, some industry agreed upon standards such as the 12 factor app uh, guidelines, which help you kind of build apps in, in such a way that they will be naturally scalable horizontally. Um, you know, then cloud computing makes it very simple and trivial to uh, increase the amount of resources that your app is running on as you need them. Uh, and, and so really that makes it 
makes the barrier of entry extremely uh, small for, for companies, you know, which, you know, the rise of, of cloud was extremely helpful for startups as well, because, you know, you don't want to invest too much money in something until you, you need to. Um, and so I think that self-service capability uh, and, and the ability to, you know, have elastic uh, infrastructure um, are really some of the key tenants behind, you know, the value of cloud for many folks. Um, and then just kind of talking about the, the evolution of Azure and really cloud computing in general, you know, I think, you know, there are numerous types of compute or programming models that exist for different levels of complexity of applications. And so um, if you want to have complete control over your deployment environment, then being able to run VMs based on you know, whatever operating system, whether that be Ubuntu or, or Red Hat or, or Windows Server, um, might be one way to go. But then on top of that, because you have that flexibility, you also have some additional uh, complexities. And so uh, you might have to then, you're now managing the OS, you're managing the, the, the server that you're running on the OS. And so, um, you know, that's where there are other types of compute in cloud computing that try to simplify um, that experience. And so, you know, the kind of next level that, that many folks are probably likely familiar with is, you know, what's called platform as a service, um, you know, which there are many examples of. Um, and in Azure, we have, you know, our first party offering is called app service, which really aims to, you know, how can we make developers as productive as possible, you know, particularly if you're building Node.js apps such that you can, you know, provision an instance of app service, get deploy your code, um, and then view it in a browser if it's a web app or hit it, you know, with a tool like Fiddler if it's a REST API um, without having to worry about, you know, what web server am I running? Um, what version of the OS do I need to do? Do I need to worry about patching this thing? Um, what configuration do I need to set for the web server um, or the, the runtime uh, I'm using, whether it's Node.js or, or .NET or Python? Um, but then beyond kind of VMs and and past solutions, you know, there are other things like you mentioned containers. And so containers have become a very pop, extremely popular uh, technology that very much enables uh, efficiency and agility with when it comes to cloud, because, you know, kind of from a resource usage perspective, containers are typically much smaller than a VM and therefore de deploying them is quicker, but they also uh, use less resources. And so that allows you to pack more of them on the same infrastructure, um, which is good from a resource usage perspective. And so, um, you know, if you have a single VM, you might be able to run four to 10 different containers on there without sacrificing um, performance, but also without sacrificing isolation. And so, you know, containers provide, you know, much of the same virtualization that you get from a VM, but just in a much more efficient way. Um, and so, you know, of course, we, we embrace containers. We have uh, numerous solutions there that we can talk about. Um, but then there are other things like serverless, you know, or functions as a service, which is also getting a lot of attention, particularly from the perspective of, you know, if you want to have code that executes in response to well-known triggers, um, such as, uh, you know, an entry being added to a database or um, an HTTP re uh, request being made to a certain endpoint, um, but also the serverless model is very attractive because of the fact that the, you're not even really worrying about doing scaling manually at all. You're just kind of writing this Node.js function and letting the, the cloud infrastructure worry about 
uh, calling it as necessary, um, and you just pay as, as you go, um, and you never even have to think about the fact that there's a server behind it, um, you know, which is kind of where the term serverless comes from. So, so really kind of in a nutshell, um, you know, with Azure, we want to provide, you know, a cloud that is able to scale up and scale down in complexity depending on the usage of the developer. And so, you know, in that realm, there are many types of applications that people can build, many types of deployment models, um, and we want to make sure that we, you know, have those solutions as necessary, which includes, in most cases, embracing open source solutions um, that are already, you know, industry standards, and therefore, you know, it just makes sense for Azure to support them to provide the easiest on-ramp for folks that are looking to, you know, embrace cloud, um, particularly for Node.js apps. So I kind of wanted to ask a question. Uh, I am not terribly familiar with Azure, so I reached out to a friend uh, last night who does a lot with it, and they kept raving about uh, the portal and setting everything up. Yeah. So as a newer developer, uh, I know when I first got started with AWS, it was extremely painful. <laughs> and okay. I feel like this is the same thing for uh, not just newer developers, but you know, it's kind of it's a joke from a lot of people you talk to. So can you talk about... Um, kind of like what has gone into the portal that is making, um, like this person is does a lot of .NET, but for people doing Node.js, like what makes setting it up so great? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, you know, even though I think in my description of kind of what Azure provides, um, you know, I was trying to be as comprehensive and nuanced as possible to help project the, you know, perception that we're trying really hard to, to provide solutions for all of the meaningful app types. At the same time, like you mentioned, we recognize that for many developers, cloud is still very new or very nascent. And so, you know, the last thing that we, we want to do is require a, a developer to have to pay this huge tax to learn all of these Azure specific concepts, um, particularly if they're looking to cloud computing to reduce barriers of entry for them to be able to spin up something, um, whether it be a web app, a REST API. And so, you know, with the portal, you know, I think we've we've tried and we continue to try based on feedback from from users to make the experience as simple as possible to kind of get going. And so if you are looking to just deploy a mean app, you know, to the cloud, um, you know, we want it to be a few clicks between you provisioning, uh, you know, the, the resources needed to deploy your code and then doing a git push. Um, as one option of your application up to, you know, in this case, app service, which is our um, you know, platform as a service, which provides kind of the easiest on-ramp for developers. Um, and so, yeah, really, that's that's kind of just our goal. Um, and as with anything, we know we can keep, keep improving it, but, uh, you know, we really do think it's important and, and really critical to um, you know, continue to simplify those uh, experiences for, for getting started with Azure, um, particularly for folks that, you know, we're not looking to cater to people that have been doing, you know, cloud and mainframe development since the dawn of time, um, even though we want to make sure we have the flexibility there for those folks. Um, you know, it should be a very developer friendly and approachable cloud. And that's really our goal. And so in, in addition to the portal, you know, we've also been working on, um, uh, you know, we have a, a CLI, which allows you to manage your Azure account as well, um, which we have very similar goals for simplicity, approachability, um, for folks that are more comfortable using a CLI uh, for certain tasks as opposed to you know the web portal experience. So if, if I want to just check out Azure or 
you know, see what it does, etc. I mean, is that relatively simple? Can I just go sign up for a free account and then poke around myself? Or, you know, do, yeah. do I have to start paying from day one? Or how does that all work? Yeah, so there's a couple of, of avenues you can go. So um, we have for, for new users, there's a free $200 credit that you can use to get started with Azure. And the benefit of that program is that you can use that credit to do anything. Um, and so whether you want to play around with you know, containers deployed to Kubernetes or you want to spin up uh, you know, Red Hat VMs or you want to use App Service or Cloud Foundry uh, or do big data, you can do any of that. And the, the 200 will, will go a long way because of the fact that all of the Azure resources are pay only for what you use. And so if you spin up some gigantic you know, 20 uh, VM cluster um, and you only use it for five minutes, then you're only going to get charged for, for that time. Um, so that's kind of the, the broad getting started that allows you to have the flexibility. Um, is, there and, a, is there a common business case for spinning up a 20 VM cluster for five minutes? No, no, I was just kind of <laughs> trying to be, uh, <laughs> well, there's, there's certainly a, you know, a, a geek case for it that it's cool. Um, but, but no, there's, there's really not, um, I was just trying to, you know, use a superlative to illustrate the, uh, um, the fact that you know you can use that 200 to go a long way, right? Um, so, like more like a, a typical case might be, hey, I'm a little bit of a hobbyist, right? I'm not ready to tell my, have my business switch over everything, you know, tell my boss, hey, let's switch everything over to Azure, but I want to start messing around with it, right? Exactly. So, like, what what might I end up getting charged for if I throw up some like hobbyist websites to do some proof of concepts about something, or you know, how how much might I end up spending, maybe? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of different things. So you know, um, so the the Azure App Service uh, product that I mentioned before, which is our quote unquote platform as a service offering, which is really what we recommend for deploying web apps or you know REST APIs to. That itself has a free tier that does not expire or is not limited by um, a credit, uh, a, you know, credit. Um, and so if you were looking to or interested in putting up a, a hobbyist website or a prototype you wanted to share, um, you could actually run that for free forever. Um, and so that's and in addition to the $200 credit limit that I mentioned, um, you can use for, for anything in Azure. Um, but we at the same time want to make sure, you know, for the scenarios that you mentioned where whether it's a, you know, a hobbyist project or an evaluation proof of concept, um, there are free tiers that allow you to do that, um, irrespective of the, the $200 credit. So I've got a question that way off topic from where we're at right now, but when people, um, I, I don't, I have a lot of experience in IT and a lot of Linux background and stuff, and yeah. I wonder that probably most people don't that listen to this podcast of mostly JavaScript developers and whatnot. Yeah. And people hear the term cloud, and you ask somebody what it is, nobody really knows. So I'd love it if you'd take a minute to describe, like, physically how Azure is organized, like the regions, the data centers, what hardware you run, like some of that stuff that's more down to earth that makes what you're happy, what you're doing work and happen. Yeah. So, you know, Azure has data centers all over the world. Um, you know, we have them in various countries within Asia and, and Australia and, of course, in North America. And, 
you know, within each of those data centers is lots and lots and lots of racks of, of physical servers. Um, the actual hardware of them uh, is a very good question. I'm not exactly sure what the, the specs on the hardware is, but... Um, you is know, it they, owned by Microsoft or is it like leased out of other data centers or...? It is owned by Microsoft. And so the, um, the the hardware varies. So, for example, when you go to you know provision a VM, for example, you select the the tier of hardware that you want that VM to actually run on. Um, you know, which varies by RAM and, and CPU. Do you need a, a you know a GPU available on the machine? Um, and so, you know, really, you know, Azure and its quote unquote you know fabric that is connecting all of those data centers together almost kind of like a, a very sophisticated operating system. Uh, when you go into the portal or you use the CLI and you say, hey, spin me up uh, you know, Ubuntu VM in the Western US region, um, you know, behind the scenes, that knows how to communicate with kind of the, the underlying Azure fabric to go communicate with that data center, find an appropriate server within that data center that that provides the the hardware specifications that you've asked for, and then it spins up a VM on that machine. Um, and the type of VM is also dependent on what you requested. So you can have a Windows Server uh, VM, you can have a, a Linux VM using you know many of the different types of distributions that we that we support. Um, and then from there you can just SSH into it. Um, and so really, you know, trying to demystify the cloud, it really is just you know, self-service provisioning of VMs on top of uh, servers that, you know, in this case, Microsoft owns and operates across the world. And so all of the other types of, you know, uh, application patterns, such as containers, or you want to do a Git deployment to this uh, app service instance, these are all just abstract abstractions that are built on top of the VM that is dynamically provisioned in the data center um, kind of at the very lowest level of Azure. Um, so when hardware fails, you know, so if I, if I have a VM and it's on a specific machine and that hardware fails, is how, how are the VMs provisioned? Does data get lost or is it uh, saved across others as well? Or what's the service disruption? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, when you're... You can almost kind of think about when you provision, you know, resources on Azure. It's kind of a you're making a a request for this resource to exist, but you're not interested or even able to specify the exact hardware that it's put on. And so, if the server or you know some of the hardware fails or there's a network issue on the exact server that your app was provisioned on, then the Azure underlying fabric or controller will do the work necessary to migrate that to another healthy machine for you without you having to worry about that. Um, now, in terms of data being lost, each VM does get uh, storage that it is able to use, but some of it is scratch data, so to speak. So you have like a, almost like a temporary hard drive that anything you write to that is not gonna be persisted across those migrations. Um, but there are uh, solutions or alternatives where if you do wanna make sure that you have uh, data that survives not just hardware failures, but um, you know maybe you uh, scale up your VM and so you say, hey, I was running it on 
you know, one CPU with two gigs of RAM. Now I want to move that up to a machine that has four CPUs and 20 gigs of RAM. Um, you know, that operation requires it to migrate the app from, from one machine to the other. And so in order to make sure that the data that you've, um, you know, created um, moves with it, um, you know, effectively you want to make sure that you're not writing that data local to the VM, but rather to a external storage um, so what, so do, what do you call your block storage containers? So we have a, a service called Azure Storage. And so okay. that allows you to create you know, block storage and then attach it to a VM as if it was just another drive. Um, and so really that's the recommended solution for you know, critical data that you want to make sure survives any issues um, or even reboots of the VM. Yeah, um, that's the next thing I was going to ask is if reboots persist data on the scratch disk or not. Uh, yeah, they don't. And so there, so it's it's more similar to Heroku, it sounds like, than Amazon or DigitalOcean. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, the you know Heroku and their twelve-factor apps um, checklist. You know, kind of one of the main tenets of that was, you know, treat backing storage as an attached resource, and you know, try to keep your web app and your apps in general as stateless if you can, um, because it simplifies these scenarios. And so, you know, uh, in addition to the compute offerings that we have, um, you know, really the, the recommended solution would be to, to move all data to a, you know, block storage uh, resource that you can then migrate or attach to other VMs um, or, you know, other compute resources that you're using. Well, and it's interesting, too, because... Um I, I put on a DevOps remote conference and then, you know, some of the same things were also brought up during the episode we just did with Derek Bailey, as far as, you know, the Docker containers and, it, you know, kind of the same thing, right? Where if it's not in the Docker file, it didn't happen on the container, but you can reach out to the file system or whatever and write stuff there. So this isn't totally unheard of, you know, you're just doing things in a very similar way. Um, I also wanted to point out and thank you for calling the, calling them things like app services and storage because whenever I try and use Amazon, I'm like, okay, QMXR is the thing that uses the functions and things and stuff, you know, or EC2 or S3 are kind of the more well-known ones. And it's like, what the heck are those? You know, Elastic Cloud, something, something. So, yeah, just having names that I can actually remember. Uh, Azure Storage is the storage. Azure App Services runs the apps. That's just very refreshing. Yeah, you know, I, uh, for better or for worse, you know, Microsoft in, in some ways has been kind of synonymous for having generic sounding names. Uh, but I, I agree with you, it can be helpful. Because, like, we also have the Azure Container Service, which surprisingly <laughs> lets you run uh, containers. Um, and so uh, I agree, it, it, it can be helpful not having that kind of fragmented uh, branding uh, ecosystem. So, one other thing I wanted to ask here is so let's say that I'm a JavaScript developer. And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, um, do I want to use something like MeanStack or do I want to use something like uh, Azure Functions with kind of a, a nice front end on it? And so all of my data kind of just runs through Azure Functions or uses maybe some of the other storage facilities or database services that Azure offers. How do you choose between those? How do you pick which way to architect your app if you're going to base it on Azure? Yeah, you know... Um that one is somewhat of a little bit of a nuanced conversation. I think really from our perspective, you know, when we're talking about, let's take the mean stack, which just happens to be the most ubiquitous kind of combination of tools and, and frameworks for node developers right now. 
um, we would personally prescribe the use of the Azure App Service because it provides the easiest on-ramp um, for just taking your code as it stands today and the code that many examples and other developers building mean apps would look like. Um, Azure Functions um, is also not mutually exclusive with App Service. Um, and so kind of one benefit of having of using a cloud that provides various types of compute is you can mix and match them as necessary. And so you could absolutely deploy the core of your app, a mean app, you know, using kind of traditional pass mechanisms like doing a, a Git deployment to, to Azure App Service and allow it to do auto scaling for you. Um, but if there are parts of your application, like maybe Greenfield uh, functionality that you find would be simpler, more cost effective, um, more intuitive to, you know, think about it in the context of the app as being this kind of decoupled stateless function that runs in response to some well-known event, which could be that the application writes uh, you know, a, a new record to Azure Storage, um, then using functions along with that might make a lot of sense. Um, in terms of you know, folks writing their entire application as a set of functions that then maybe has some you know, gateway in front of it to do routing or, or something, you know, I think that kind of practice is still fairly new. And so, you know, we just, we it's absolutely possible, but it's, it's not really what we would recommend just because it's still fairly nascent. Um, you know, we want to help people be as successful as possible by using the patterns and practices that the community is, you know, are ubiquitous right now in the community. Um, so I, I, I think there, you know, app service is really what we're, what we're leading with in terms of the simplest solution for mean apps. Um, but we absolutely embrace and want to support that kind of mix and match capability. Um, Cause you could absolutely imagine, you know, if somebody's, you could have a VM that's doing one part of your application. Um, you could have app service instances running another part and you could have Azure functions. Um, and so, you know, within Azure, there's nothing that prevents you from being able to mix and match those solutions if that's what makes the most sense for for your scenario um, from a technical but also a, you know, um, financial perspective because the, the pricing models are different between those three. And so sometimes it can help make it so that you're, you can reduce costs as well as scalability depending on which of those three that you choose. So I wanted to ask specifically about uh, the mean stack and yeah. Uh, on Azure and document is a document DB. Is that the right name for it? Uh huh. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? I was just reading about that, and uh, it was actually kind of new to me. I hadn't heard of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so just I guess for folks that maybe aren't as familiar with it, you know, Mean stands for MongoDB, Express, Angular JS, and, and Node. Um, and really, as of late, the Angular part can be swapped out for for React JS, which is of course becoming extremely popular for the front end. Um, and so when we think about mean slash MERN on Azure, um, you know, the Express and Angular slash React part is obviously, you know, a decision and a, a part of your application. Um, Node.js is, of course, the runtime that we support first class and app service and other, other uh, Azure resources. But on the Mongo side, um, you know, really, as I mentioned, we want the barrier of entry for developers that want to use that stack to be as simple as possible. And so for everyone spinning up a VM and installing MongoDB on that and then managing that server and the need to scale it 
and create a you know replication cluster, and then maybe the need to shard the data um, as your demand and traffic on the application grows is not trivial. Um, and so we within Azure have a, a NoSQL database called DocumentDB that is fully managed. And by that, we mean you just provision an instance of it and you never worry about installing anything. Scaling it is as simple as just saying, hey, I need to be guaranteed to, to receive this amount of throughput um, you know, with, with very low latency uh, performance characteristics. And I don't know or care how you make that work. Um, I just need that much uh, performance capabilities. Um, and so because of the fact that we want to meet developers where they are and provide great support for well-defined community standards, DocDB supports exposing a MongoDB compatible interface. And so what's, what's cool about that is if you have an app that you built with Node.js and MongoDB and you want to deploy that to Azure, you can spin up app service Get push your code to that, no management necessary. Um, scale it as you need it. And then on your the MongoDB side for your you know backing data store, you can spin up an instance of DocDB specifying you want Mongo support. That will then give you a connection string. And then all you have to do is change your the connection string that your web app or REST API uses to connect to Mongo to point at DocDB instead. And it'll work without you having to make any other code changes in your app that are specific to Azure or to DocDB. Um, but with the benefit of not having to, uh, you know, manage that Mongo backend yourself. And so, you know, really that's kind of the, the main value prop. Um, and so, you know, we've seen a lot of a lot of great responses from Node developers using Mean, who you know are able to get up and going fairly quickly um, without having to worry too much about managing the underlying infrastructure. Very interesting. So as and you use the same drivers, right? Like can you you can use Mongoose with DocumentDB? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry, go ahead. How do you guys like keep that in sync, say as MongoDB itself changes in versions? Do you just have to like watch it and replicate the same functionality? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, right now, right now, right. Um, are you mostly reverse engineering that? Uh, no, I mean, you know, the the protocol that MongoDB uses is, um, you know, fairly well known. And of course, I mean, drivers like you mentioned, whether it be Mongoose or the MongoDB uh, native driver for, for Node.js have to respond to changes in the MongoDB protocol as well. And so, you know, DocDB is kind of just another client, uh, or in this case, kind of like a reverse proxy in the Mongo ecosystem. And so we, you know, we just, like you said, watch and participate in that um, ecosystem to continue to make sure that our interoperability is, is, uh, you know, as expected. But, but yeah, just to answer your question, so you can spin up a DocDB instance with Mongo support, and then you can point the MongoDB CLI at that. You can point um, other GUI-based MongoDB tools like MongoChef at, at DocDB. Any of the client SDKs, you can point at it, um, and it will work exactly as you, as you would expect. Um, and so that's, that's really kind of one of the benefits. It's like if you're an existing MongoDB user, you won't have to change anything about your workflow um, from a tool usage perspective um, or even uh, your application code. So like if you export data from a MongoDB database, you can then import it into a DocDB instance using MongoDB um, and just go from there. So, Cool. 
Well, it sounds really slick the way that it uh, is all completely managed for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it's kind of like, you know, the, the serverless community has has taken that broad term, you know, to kind of refer to this kind of compute pattern for writing functions that are, you know, uh, infinitely scalable and, and executed based on well-known events. But really, the kind of term or general goal of, you know, serverless, quote unquote, or, you know, platform as a service is, you know, how do we make it so that developers can be successful doing more app types, more um, backing data stores without having to manage servers themselves, um, which is, you know, something that's very useful uh, to be able to do, but can also represent, you know, additional cost and complexity for just getting going uh, quickly. Um, and so, so DocDB represents kind of another another uh, effort of ours to help simplify, you know, cloud development for for, for folks, particularly Node.js developers. So I had a question about your story on Node. Um, obviously, a, a broad topic here, but effectively, if I choose to host Node on Azure, I can choose from a broad range of, I assume, the last many releases to on there because you'd effectively just spin up a uh, a container for me. Uh, or, or what is your story? Uh, I, like I'm familiar more with. Um, with hosting on Heroku, but but how does how does your Node story differ from Heroku? Um, you know, if you're familiar with Heroku, then the story would be fairly similar. Um, okay. For if you're using Azure App Service, you know you can. Uh, we have two variants of that. We have one where uh, the backing servers are actually Windows based, um, which for the most part is an implementation detail because you're just kind of doing a Git deployment or pushing your code to GitHub and, and allowing app service to actually do the work to figure out how to you know, turn that into a runnable built application. Um, but, but kind of, as I mentioned with app service, you know, using the portal or using our CLI, you provision an instance of that. You say, I, I need a web app. If you want to use Git based deployments, you just ask for, you know, what's the Git URL at that remote, to your application and do a git push. Um, and it's as simple as that. Um, if your package JSON you know, defines all of your third-party library dependencies, um, specifies what's your start script to kick the app off, um, as well as specifies the exact version of uh, Node.js that your app needs, um, then those things will be respected. Um, that way, you know, uh, your your application can define the requirements that it has, and then you allow, you know, app service to do the work to actually uphold that that specification that you've made with your app. Um, now, going even further, you know, uh, we also have a preview right now of app service on Linux, and that is all Docker based, such that when you do a Git push behind the scenes, it actually, you know, takes your app code, creates a Docker container, and then runs that for you. So if you're going with that route, you don't have to even realize that it's using containers behind the scenes. Um, but one of the benefits of knowing that you can, uh, that it uses containers, uh, is that if you're defining your application dependencies as a Docker file, as opposed to just relying on the package JSON file of your application, um, that does give you a little bit more flexibility over what um, your application requires in order to run. Um, and so if you've already kind of standardized or moved towards using you know, Docker, um, then you can simply uh, deploy that 
Docker uh, image, um, whether it's on Docker Hub or your own private container registry, um, as opposed to doing kind of the, the more traditional Git-based deployment. Um, so the experience should be very similar for folks coming from from really you know any other pass, but like you mentioned, Heroku. Um, but then in addition to that kind of workflow, there are other options where you know if you would like to have a little bit more control over your servers and you want to provision a VM, we have Node.js VMs available that you can spin up immediately that include the latest uh, LTS version of Node.js on it. Or we have VMs that have the latest version of MongoDB or VMs that have the latest version of both if you want to run a single VM mean stack. Um, or if you want to you know, uh, go with a container orchestrator um, because you know your company wants to be able to deploy containers and have a little bit more control over a cluster, you know, we have uh, the Azure Container Service lets you spin up uh, a Kubernetes or a Docker Swarm cluster uh, and then do very simple deployments of your Docker images that way as well. Um, so the, the learning curve for folks familiar with Heroku would be very similar, um, but then at the same time, there's kind of additional options um, that you would have as a Node.js developer depending on your, your needs and your you know, company or project's uh, technology stack. So we have, um, you know, another another answer to your question is uh, maybe we can add a link to it in this video. But we have um, some some tutorials that we actually posted recently on the VS Code blog that shows kind of what that end-to-end -end experience looks like for, you know, deploying a Node.js mean app to Azure um, using the CLI. And um, I think that would help illustrate that kind of familiar experience that you were mentioning, um, wanting to know if Azure has. So one last topic I wanted to talk about a little bit was NVS. Sure. Um, which is kind of crazy. I mean, uh, I guess it's like Microsoft's stick now to go reinvent something that's already seems to have great players. And at least in the case of Visual Studio Code, like rock the house with it. So it's a new node version manager, right? And it's a replacement sort of for NVM, but it's cross-platform. Yeah, you know, um, Really, the the reason that we put it together was just because of the fact that we, you know, felt there was a need for, like you mentioned, a cross-platform solution for managing versions of Node. Um, you know, particularly as, you know, in the current world of Node, you have the LTS version at any given time, which right now is the 6.9 branch. But then you also have the current branch, which currently is 7.0, and that's interesting for developers because you know, that includes new features and is, you know, more rapidly iterated on. Um, but then you also have Node Nightly versions, which you might want to play with. Um, in addition to the traditional V8-based Node, um, you know, we work on uh, a variant of Node that uses the Chakra JavaScript engine under the covers. And so really the need to have a, a way to manage the versions of Node that you have on your machine, switch between them, migrate, you know, NPM packages between them uh, becomes pretty important. And so, uh, you know, we've had a lot of users and, and really our teams as well where, you know, we work between Mac and Windows or, you know, Windows and Linux. Um, and so the NVS just kind of represents a way to, to do that management of node versions in a way that you don't have to change your workflow regardless of the OS that you're actually working on. So, Right, and that, that's kind of helpful for somebody like me. I have a Mac laptop and a Windows desktop. And going back and forth, I have to remember what the syntax is. Not that I'm switching around Node a ton. Yeah. Right? But I'm always looking up. I use like Notist 
on my Windows desktop, which I think is a little dated now. Right. But, uh, you know, it's always kind of a pain to remember. But there was a free feature I saw in there that seemed super cool, which was uh, version switching by directory. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's actually a feature that some of the other existing node managers do support. Um, but I would say in addition to providing the cross-platform support, NVS also, you know, wanted to learn and benefit from some of the great ideas that, that you know, previous version managers had. And so, you know, um, the feature you're talking about can be helpful if you you want to manage global versions of Node, but maybe you want to be able to CD into the directory of an app and have that automatically change to the version of Node that that app needs to function correctly. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's one workflow that some developers like and, and definitely can make it easy to, you know, not have to chase down some weird bug only to find out that the version of Node you're running isn't actually compatible with the app. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, that's cool. The old Ruby version manager did that, had a dot, uh, RVM, R for Ruby, obviously, but... Yeah. yeah, so it just did that .rvm file, and you just go in there, and it looked it up. The tool looked in there and then saw the version and just switched for you. It was really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely can be helpful. I wanted to talk about, before we go on to picks, uh, VS Code really quick. I was like yeah. a long-time BIM user and then made complete 180, went to WebStorm, and uh, in the past couple of months, I've switched over to VS Code, and I, I love it, actually. Um, so I was just curious, for people who don't use it, can you kind of talk about... Um, like what's coming up and you guys push releases uh, fairly often. So it just seems like there's always something new coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's awesome to hear that uh, it's working great for you. Um, and so really Visual Studio Code is, you know, part of the Visual Studio family, but really where, you know, it, we think it shines and where we're trying to, you know, focus our efforts on is a lightweight text editor experience that brings in some of the goodness typically associated with an IDE but without overloading it to the point that it has that heavyweight kind of uh, obtrusive feel. Exactly. Um, That's what know, I really so like about it. <laughs> it. It tends to be a great companion. It, uh, and that's a hard balance to strike, right? It's like every time we talk about new features or whatever, the team is very much cognizant of like, well, does this make sense being part of the integrated VS Code experience or not? Um, because we want to keep that promise of it needs to be you know, lightweight so you don't think twice about double clicking on a, a loose file on your desktop and opening it up in VS uh, code um, because it takes too long to load. Um, and so really with VS code and you know relevant to this conversation, our primary focus is Node.js and, and web app development. And so, you know, one of the, a couple of the core features that, that VS code has for those app types um, that we believe, you know, have been traditionally associated with IDEs but really makes sense as part of a text editor is things like great auto completion. So when you're authoring code, you know, you don't have to worry about typos or looking up documentation, um, but also integrated debugging. And so, you know, in the last month or so, um, and, and, and for folks that aren't familiar, we actually have a, a nightly build. Um, so we do monthly releases of VS code. And so we're iterating on it like crazy, but we also have a nightly build that you can install, um, which is kind of like, you know, a canary version of, of other products um, and lets you see the latest and greatest and also use the same version that the VS Code team itself uses. Um, and so, for example, we just recently released support for, you can open up a arbitrary JavaScript file and hit F5 and start debugging that um, and step through it and view locals and have an integrated console to evaluate expressions. 
um, which makes prototyping node apps very simple. Um, in the past, VS Code had really great debugging support, but there was this, this JSON file that you had to create um, and effectively instruct VS Code on how to launch um, and debug your application. And so now, um, you know, really where we wanted to get to is make it completely seamless, like open up any directory or any file, and if it's a node app, uh, just hit F5 and go, set a breakpoint right in the editor. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, we've also made a lot of strides on the, the auto-completion side where, um, you know, so my team also uh, creates TypeScript, you know, which for folks that aren't familiar with it is a superset of JavaScript that provides the ability to add types to your code, um, which can be very helpful for larger code bases or folks that are maybe more comfortable with having a little bit of more type type uh, safety and, and kind of tooling. Um, uh, and one thing that was great about TypeScript is because your code has more metadata and semantics about the type system, tools like editors could provide um, more auto-completion or early errors because it knows more about what's expected. And um, recently within VS Code, we've actually made it such that if you're writing and editing JavaScript code, that will actually reuse the same typing definitions that libraries have defined for TypeScript to drive better authoring for JavaScript. And so the effect being, you know, I open up an arbitrary JavaScript file, and if I am requiring uh, the Express module or Mongoose, and I type a dot after that library, I will get the accurate list of all of the members that that module has without having to do anything. And then I can hit F5, and I can start debugging it once again without having to do anything. Um, and you know, beyond just Node, we also have debugging support for the front end, and you can also do uh, attach multiple debuggers to different processes at the same time, which is pretty cool. So if you're doing a mean app, and you have you know Chrome launched for the front end, Node launch for the back end, you can actually set breakpoints in the front end and the back end and step between them uh, in the same debugging session. Um, and so really, you know, with VS Code, um, you know, as I mentioned, we really are striving for that lightweight, yet very rich and very unobtrusive experience for authoring and debugging applications. Um, and, and really with, right now with a very strong focus on, on JavaScript. So if folks haven't haven't checked it out, I would definitely recommend it. Um, you know, for the conversation on Azure, you know, we really see, you know, VS Code, the Azure CLI, and of course Azure itself as being kind of the core components of our cloud and developer story for Node.js. And so we we keep working to make the three of them as collaborative as possible, um, because to improve the developer experience holistically, um, you know. Sometimes there's things that need to happen as part of your local dev experience. Sometimes there's simplicities to make. Uh, so, yeah. Well, um, we're kind of at the end of the show, so uh, we need to do picks really quick. Okay. I don't know if anyone uh, told you about picks because we kind of set this up, up out of band. So what picks are, are there essentially whatever in your life is making your life better? Um, a lot of times the picks have to do with technology, but just as often it seems like the picks have more to do with um, TV shows or movies or music yeah. or whatever. So we'll let the rest of the panel go first so you can kind of get an idea of what we're picking and then we'll give you a chance. Um, AJ, do you want to start us with picks? He complained about it yesterday, so I have to pick on him. That's good. That's good. Um, so I was thinking about this earlier and now that I'm on the spot, I'm going to come up with something immediately. Uh, 
Okay, one is there's this band called The Script, and they're kind of old, and I don't think they've had anything come out recently. But they have good stuff, and I'd recommend giving them a listen. Um, also, there's a book that I've been reading, which I think I picked on one of the other episodes, but whatever, uh, called Real Love. And it's the premise of it is about finding unconditional love, but predominantly like finding it in yourself as in to become a loving person. Um, and that in doing so you don't need, uh, others, not in that, like you can be solitary, but that, and like you are able to give and receive reciprocally in healthy ways. Um, and I think it's a really profound book and just from the first chapter, just, it's a hard hitter. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody who wants to, boost their sense of self-worth and their ability to communicate effectively and connect with other people. All right. Uh, Joe, what are your picks? Uh, all right. So I want to pick a band. I've been listening to, it's actually like a singing group, this group called the Koi boys, K O I they're on Spotify. They put out an album late last year, I guess. I just discovered the album, although I'd known about them since before they had this amazing audition on um, like Australia's Got Talent, I think, or something. It's these three guys. They sing some really cool songs. So a uh, little barbershop quartet kind of type stuff, although they're singing mostly modern songs. But very fun, very fun music. Um, they sing a version of All About That Bass that's really cool, sort of a bluesy version. So I'm going to pick the Koi Boys. And then I'm also going to pick the NES Classic. My wife bought me an NES Classic for Christmas. They're Good still wife. super hard to get. Yes, yes. She had to pay extra to get it because the only way you could actually buy one is if you work at the store and you buy them before anybody else does because there's so few of them. So she paid extra to get it, but it's been awesome. Real blast from the past. And those are my picks. All right. Uh, Corey, what are your picks? I'm just doing one pick today. I am a big fan of audiobooks, and one that I finished a few months ago that I just loved was Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, which is the story of his career as a stand-up comedian. Absolutely fascinating, and uh, really, for anybody, a lot of uh, life lessons in here of realizing that there were so many times that Steve Martin was doing stand-up comedy to one or two people, or even in some cases to a completely empty room because they said you have to keep performing because people will walk by and see you performing and maybe some will come in and buy a drink. So, uh, highly recommend it. It's all read by Steve Martin too, which, which makes it a whole lot of fun. Uh, that's mine. All righty, Amy, what are your picks? Uh, I have two. So February of this year marks like the one year mark that I've been working remotely. So it is a uh, GitHub that has just a bunch of tips on working remotely. Uh, I feel like too, this is a common question for newer developers. And from my experience, something I wouldn't typically recommend for newer developers. Uh, and it gets into some of the points of why maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea for your first job. Uh, anyway, so that's my first pick. And then the second pick uh, is a book called The Sacred Search. I'll have a disclaimer that it is uh, a Christian book, so if that's not your thing, you can carry on. Uh, but if you are, uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, I also did the audiobook, and I am almost done with it, and I wish I would have read it sooner. So it's really, really, really good stuff. That's it for me. 
Very cool. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. First off, uh, Angular Remote Conf. If you're an Angular developer or React Remote Conf, for that matter, uh, calls for proposals are opening up really soon. So um, go ahead and submit to those. Um, and then finally, I'm going to pick a book that I read that kind of blew my mind. It's called Deep Work. Um, it's by... Uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name. Anyway, it's terrific. It's the guy that wrote So Good They Can't Ignore You, Cal Newport. Um, and uh, it's terrific just on focus and finding focus time and all of that great stuff. So uh, if you're looking for something that might be able to kind of take you to the next level on your programming skills or time, then go check it out. Uh, Jonathan, do you have a couple of picks for us? Yeah. Uh, really, uh, two things I've been really loving lately is uh, I recently switched over to Spotify, and they have a playlist called The Most Beautiful Songs in the World, which uh, is pretty epic and can make uh, your coding experience feel uh, a little more cinematic, um, at least for cheesy people like me. Um, and then the other thing is uh, I haven't actually played a video game all the way through in about a million years, uh, and my wife had bought me Final Fantasy XV, which I was not really a fan of the series. Good wife. Uh, but but ended up being a pretty awesome game. I finished it last night, uh, and uh, it was kind of a interesting, fulfilling experience to actually finish a game. Um, so for folks that are interested, I would uh, definitely recommend it. All righty. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter, check out whatever else you've got going on. Um, where do they go? What do they do? Uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is uh, Lost in Tangent, which is also my uh, GitHub handle, um, and I'm pretty active on both. Um, or people can reach out to me and, and email at uh, johncart at microsoft.com. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thanks for coming, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. All right. We will catch you all next week. Bye. Bye. Peace. All See right. ya.